What does the phrase Game Master mean? Is it simply a synonym for other labels we stick on the poor soul who organises and runs a traditional tabletop role-playing game? Or might it have a deeper meaning? And if we wanted to master our craft, how would we begin? Hey, it's Che, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Rescuers, my name is Che Webster and this is Roleplay Rescue, the podcast about rediscovering our passion for tabletop role-playing games. When clarity began to emerge in my life a couple of months ago, as recorded in episode 14 of this series, I started to shed a great deal of gaming baggage. This began with starting to declutter my gaming book stacks, something which I found joyful rather than painful, as books which have been gathering dust for years found new homes with other gamers across the world. The sense of lightening my psychic load has been palpable as the weeks have passed. And then an old idea re-emerged. The question of what it might mean to begin to master my role-playing craft. You see, for me, tabletop role-playing is more than mere hobby or pastime. It's been a passion and outlet for creativity consistently for more than 40 years, rooted back in my childhood and carried forward through the passing decades. But the question of what it means to be a game master, the one who has mastered the game, has been an unresolved cognitive loop ever since I first bought and read the rather clumsy text of Gary Gygax's role-playing game mastery back in the 1980s. Rather than being a synonym for the referee, arbiter, storyteller or whatever other badge you want to stick on the organiser and host of the game, that word master has always resonated with me. The master is not the one in charge. That's not what it means to me at all. It doesn't mean the Doctor Who guy either. I think of this in terms of craft, of the ancient idea of the person who has learned and honed their skills over time. And so today I want to speak to you about the idea of mastery and the fear which arises whenever one speaks about attaining such status, of the sense of inadequacy and foolishness which leads me to feel as though it is preposterous to suggest such an outrageous idea. How could I, this fumbling idiot who barely knows how to roll dice, ever suppose to call himself Master of the Game? This is Season 12, Episode 22. The Fear of Mastery. What is mastery, and why would we seek to attain it? The Merriam-Webster Dictionary has some curious definitions, but the top of the list reads as follows, quote, A male teacher. A person holding an academic degree higher than a bachelor's, but lower than a doctor's. A revered religious leader. A worker or artisan qualified to teach apprentices. An artist, performer or player of consummate skill. A great figure of the past whose work serves as a model or ideal. End quote. 
While there's a great deal to reflect on in all of those possibilities, I think the meaning best suited to the idea of the game master with a tabletop RPG is the player of consummate skill. Thus, mastery would be the process by which we improve our skill in the playing of these amazingly versatile games. And it's interesting to consider that the master is as much a player as the traditionally designated participant who is given the label, player. We are all, after all is said and done, gathering at the table to play the game. As Stuart Brown has helped us to understand, play is not productive in the usual sense of the word. We do it because we choose to, not because we have to. At first blush, it might seem strange to speak of mastery around the subject of play, yet play is in and of itself attractive and appealing, making us want to take part. Why would we not wish to become better and more skilled in our play? We experience a sense of timelessness while we play, sometimes referred to as flow, and we lose much of our sense of self and consciousness about what we are doing while we play. And who would not wish to increase their skill in such a way as to spend more time in the delightful state of flow? But play is also, to some degree, improvised, not being entirely scripted and being, in one sense, liberating. Play makes us want to play again. To master one's play would be a high ideal, and yet it would also seem to refer to a long and practiced development of our craft. Our ability to play is innate, but the quality of our play can be improved through repetition. While on the one hand our performance of play might not bear the high stakes of other facets in our lives, it's not something we would seek to measure in the typically industrial sense of the modern workplace. Play is something which we could aspire to increase, both in terms of the span of time spent in playful enjoyment, but also in terms of the pleasure we derive from it. I don't know about you, but I know that I feel better about and enjoy more those things which I have a sense of having mastered, or at least of having become slightly better at doing. In ancient times, masters were honed from journeymen, and they in turn were trained as apprentices. And my proposal is that we place ourselves back at the beginning, that we assign ourselves the role of apprentice of the game, and we look at what it might take to move towards mastery over time. So what might mastery of a game look like? Let's begin with this. Masters were not born, and no one became the master of their craft in a day. All masters began, as must we, serving their time as an apprentice. Quote, apprentice, one bound by indenture to serve another for a prescribed period with a view to learning an art or trade. One who is learning by practical experience under skilled workers a trade, art or calling. A novice. End quote. While I don't think the idea of an apprentice being bound to another person is an idea that sits very well at all with 21st century postmodern gamers, there lies within that definition a kernel of something useful. The idea that, for a period of time, we bind ourselves to the service of learning the trade. In other words, the idea that we would willingly submit ourselves to learning to play these games in a focused and disciplined manner for a prescribed period of time. Once we have served our apprenticeship, we are ready to take up our mantle as the journeyman and leave the limitations we accepted upon ourselves while we were learning. 
And the idea of apprenticeship resonates deeply with me in the desire to become a game master. It means setting aside other distractions and focusing upon learning my craft. It means accepting some reasonable limitations so that I might become adept over time with the playing of these games. It means working towards the time when, having learned the basics of my trade, I can then branch out into the role of the journeyman. My proposal is this. The apprentice game master would be wise to choose one game to learn. This would mean choosing a single set of role-playing game rules, focusing on the core methodological skills that are required to run the particular flavour of tabletop role-playing game you enjoy, and doing so within a limited series of game world projects. Given time, perhaps a year or two of apprenticeship, having built some confidence with our trade and perhaps even a little more trust with our playing friends, then we will be ready to take on the role of the journeyman. Quote, journeyman, an experienced, reliable worker, athlete or performer, especially as distinguished from one who is brilliant or colourful, end quote. Our quest begins with acquiring some experience and a reputation for reliability. Heaven knows that this idea of reliability has been the most elusive quality in my performance as a game master over the years. I've lost count of the campaigns begun and abandoned in the pursuit of another new attraction, masking as it did my underlying lack of skill and discipline with these games, and also masking my fear. Hiding our fear behind the mask of rapidly changing goals of new games begun because of this or that new and exciting product or opportunity is a recipe for remaining ever the amateur. We might have a great deal of love and passion, but without discipline and focus, we remain ever and always the one who lacks competence in our field, jack of all trades and master of none. This has new meaning as we consider our path towards mastery. Every time I've sought to move myself towards my vision of being a master of these games, I've been confronted by fear. Why do we fear going deeper into our games? Stephen Pressfield would tell us that this is the natural arousing of the resistance. This pernicious force is the opposition to our art, of our creative and spiritual self. Anytime we seek to improve ourselves or our work, to do something higher and more noble, the resistance crowds in and blocks our way. Resistance most commonly whispers in our ear. Sometimes it shows up in the words and actions of others, but mostly it's in our minds. I can hear it now, as I said the words, being a master of these games. Here are some of the things I can hear the resistance saying in my mind. How pretentious do you want to be? These are just games, you idiot. They are not worthwhile ways to spend your time. If you'd spent more time doing your work and less time wasting your life with these games, well, how much richer would you be? And even if they were worthwhile, who are you to imagine that you could ever master them? You fool, give up. Stick to playing computer games or board games, card games or even chess if you must pretend to be smarter than you are. Role-playing games are not an art. They are silly childish elf games. Who would ever seek to master such a worthless thing as a role-playing game? And so we hesitate. Blimey, Webster, do you even hear yourself? You like to imagine that you'll become good at something. 
Loosen up, you over-serious, pompous ass. These are games. You're supposed to play with them, like running around with the two-year-olds in the garden playing knights and dragons as ever something to aspire to master. Give it up, you old fool. Yes, I suspect that you can hear and recognise the resistance too. I spoke about the fear of starting back in episode 8 when I said that the fear of turning up and doing the work every day is a problem. And to cap it all, as Pressfield tells us, the fear of finishing, of shipping the work, of submitting the manuscript, of sharing what we've created, of turning up to run the game, that's the hardest challenge of all. Resistance hates folks who begin, despises those who work through the middle, and will try to kill those who seek to finish. I mean, let's revisit the games I was talking about back in episode 8 when I said I was deciding to turn pro to become a serious-minded professional in the realm of role-playing games. Ha! says the resistance. Look how that worked out. You're a laggard and a fraud, Webster. Ha! Told you so. I told myself this. Quote, Every morning I get up and begin a routine that takes me to work. I teach all day and I exhaust myself on the battlefield to the classroom. But now that I'm a pro, I come home, and I begin a routine that leads me to cook, eat, pray, blog, tiny prep, and then sit down and write for an hour. The hardest part is getting my ass where my heart wants to be, in the chair, in front of my laptop, writing. End quote. Ha! <laughs> says the resistance. He's laughing at me right now. In my head, it tempts me to feel awful. I can see just how easily I am bested by my enemy. I mean, Crag's Ruin got off to a good start, and I even began to record some episodes. But I haven't played for about six weeks. And, to be honest, I kind of need to shift to something new. Stars Darkened got through two sessions before I abandoned it. That's pretty typical, if we're being honest. Dungeons of Thal, powered by GURPS 3rd Edition? Yeah, that's on hold too. I've not touched it for more than six weeks. Both of those games got displaced by the idea of playing in Balazar with GURPS 4th edition. What kind of a professional doesn't do their work for six weeks? What kind of a professional abandons projects and then starts new ones? You're not reliable. You're a fraud. Useless. Totally and utterly useless. No wonder your players don't turn up on game nights. Why would they trust you? The resistance is relentless. Now do you understand why we might fear the path towards mastery? How can we overcome the fear of mastery? How can we overcome the inertia? How do we break through the resistance's barriers? We have to make a decision. And if there's one thing I've come to understand as I reflect back on the gap between my first decision to, as Pressfield terms it, turn pro... And my current situation, well, it's this. You have to make the decision every single day. Commitment is born from the decision we make to commit. But commitment isn't a one-time thing. It's a daily thing. You see, each time we go to bed and sleep, the old us dies. And when we awaken, it's as if we're a new person. Today's potential is always to begin again. But we do have to choose. We must decide. Who shall we be today? As Aristotle told us, who we are is the accumulation of the decisions and actions that we took through all our yesterdays. But we don't have to repeat the mistakes of our past. 
If we commit to making a small change today, then perhaps we will learn how it feels to enjoy a victory, however small and fleeting, and choose to make another small change tomorrow. Resistance likes to get us comparing ourselves to some imagined other person, our perception of a superior person who is better than us in whatever single category we choose to focus on for our comparison. Resistance likes to show us our inadequacies in comparison to others who have greater skill than we. But this is a fallacy. Firstly, our perception of others is a construction of our imagination based on fleeting and incomplete real-world data. I mean, we conveniently edit out the flaws while we fail to see the hidden weaknesses of every human being around us. Oh, go on, look at that person's map work. You couldn't do that. And that person's writing is infinitely better than your humble scratchings. And come on, seriously, you think you could run a game as confidently as that awesome GM? Resistance laughs at us. But the only yardstick which matters is the one where we compare the us of today with the us of yesterday. Am I a little better today than I was last time I attempted this task? Have a look around your hobby space, your shelves, notes and all that stuff. Is there one thing you notice that could be improved or fixed and which would improve your experience? Now you can see it. The question is, are you prepared to improve or fix it? Now, if you say no, that it's too much effort or will take too long or it just seems too big, is there a way to make it smaller? To make it tiny, even? Would you be prepared to do that? It might only take a couple of minutes. Once you found one small thing you could do that would improve or fix your experience in your hobby, why not make the decisions to do it? What I've discovered is that the simple decision to be professional, to show up and do that one small thing today, right now, while I have the willingness to do it, that decision leads me to improvement. Sure, I might be an apprentice, but at least I'm on a path towards becoming a reliable apprentice. And reliable is someone I can respect. What kind of new habits would help us to build our mastery? Well, it'll be tiny ones. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The way towards improving our craft at a gaming table is through tiny, incremental effort. Every day. A tiny bit more. I call this the path of tiny prep. But you have to decide again each day. Are you a professional today? Are you willing to apprentice yourself to the craft today? Or are you simply going to allow yourself to forever remain the amateur What's your great game going to be? Well, you're never going to find out until you decide. And the path towards mastery begins with a decision. And the decision is to be apprenticed again, today. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. I do love to receive messages and call-ins from listeners, so if you want to ask a question, hop on over to speakpipe.com slash rescue where you can leave a voice message. I do listen to every message, and apart from maybe one or two, over the almost five years of producing this show, I've replied to pretty much all of them. That said, after episode 20, Transitions, 
I began to receive a few more call-ins, mostly in answer to my question, but also commenting on the episode itself. And I'm a bit worried that this episode would run a little long, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to play a few of the calls on stuff that aren't about stuff in episode 20. I'll save those up for a compilation all of their own, and I'll share just what's in the mailbox about other recent episodes. But big thanks to everyone who's called in. Please keep them coming in. And I hope that you'll bear with me while I organise those comments from episode 20 into some kind of coherent form. Hello, Jay. It's Anthony calling in from the road. Well, I have just finished, during my awful commute, listening to the thrilling tale of the heroes, the young heroes, (laughs) penetrating into the ruined tower and facing off against the horrific spider. I really enjoyed this episode. The audio game that you're playing, you've stepped up quite a bit. The screams of the spider and and, uh, the atmospherics really make it enjoyable to listen to as fiction. But you're also particularly hitting my favorite elements by including subtle or overt deployment or description of the mechanisms in play. And so I particularly thrilled to the arrival of the resistance table. Um, This is, you know, one of those parts of BRP that has wound up somehow being controversial and celebrated when it was excised from the text, but uh, I've never been able to to really grasp the hatred. I have found lots of people who didn't know how to use it or tried to use it for the wrong thing, and so therefore you can kind of, you know, imply why they don't like it, but, you know, I was really happy to see your slick use of the resistance table and, you know, for exactly what it's for, and uh, and that moment of hope, are they going to be able to bash their way through the door, or, yeah, very cool. Thank you very much for the effort I know it takes to put this stuff out, and I'm looking forward to the next installment. Although, you know, I was really worried they wouldn't be able to deal with the spider, but now I'm wondering if if this is, you know, where we're entering into possible TPK territory, because these things, as you described them, sound horrific. And I can't wait for the horror to start. Take care. Hey, people Jeff. Just finished listening to the latest Crags Ruin that uh, released for everybody. And wanted to say great stuff there. I listened to all four of them. Uh, good storytelling. And I really am appreciating you uh, going through the GM emulator deck. Uh, and for those who have not heard it before or seen the product before, get an idea of how it's used and really how you can go about interpreting what the cards say. Um, I don't know if I'm going to get the cards myself or just dig more into the actual emulator with the dice and such. I got to think about that one myself. But thanks for featuring that item. And uh, hopefully the uh, adventurers get to continue adventuring on, though it doesn't sound like it's going to happen very easily at this point. 
<laughs> yeah. A uh, big thanks, Anthony and Evil Jeff, calling in around the Solo Tales game. Episode 4 aired uh, just a, a little bit before I called this, and uh, those feats of feedback were really gratefully received. I uh, just want to say that um, back around the start of July, I've actually moved all four of those episodes to a new podcast called Roleplay Rescues Solo Tales, and it's available on pretty much all podcasts as far as I'm aware. And the four episodes are there, and there is a fifth one. Uh, and, and there will be more episodes, but I can't honestly hand on heart say that um, that the adventurers have a very fun time in episode five. I don't want to spoil anything, but your intuitions, gentlemen, aren't entirely wrong. But anyway, thank you so much for calling. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Um, actually, I really enjoy putting them together. I'm really enjoying playing the sessions. I'm also enjoying putting them together as an audio thing, which really helps me enjoy my session all over again. And you know what? It's so pleasing that other people are enjoying them too. So thanks for calling. Yeah, game on, guys. Game on. H.A. Jason here. Just listened to 1217. And, yep, maps have always been great to look at, great to imagine around. But it goes back to, for me, probably The Hobbit, right? Maybe even before The Hobbit, to be honest. But as far as fantasy maps go, probably The Hobbit. Um, But, nope, I'm with you. And I'm excited for your Saturday group. That sounds very positive. So I look forward to seeing how it turns out. Take care of yourself. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, Jay. Spencer here. I just wanted to say I really enjoyed that conversation with Simon Williams about player agency. And it got me thinking about my experience as a player, particularly in games run by Barney Dicker of Loco Ludus. And I'm thinking about his League of Eternal Guardians game in particular because um, the way the game is set up there, it's a time travel game in the sense that we're being sent to a particular time period to address a particular problem. Essentially, a situation that requires investigating and based on what we discover, we then have to determine how we're going to manage that situation and yes thinking about that in terms of player agency and how well firstly there is a situation that we will be entering into there's no choice there apart from whether you want to actually play or not but it's very much left up to us as to what we decide is the actual threat and sometimes it transpires that we are actually helping to create the situation that we're meant to be averting by maybe misinterpreting what the actual threat is wherever we are and I have to say it's part of my own twisted sensibilities that those are the sessions that I enjoy the most So while the the finer details are being improvised, something is going to happen. And it's down to our actions as to whether that happening is going to be averted. I guess it's just interesting to me how that relates to agency when you've got a GM who is, to a certain extent, another player who is playing the world as it responds 
to the party's actions. So yes, we do have agency, but sometimes it's possible for us to misuse that agency, apply that agency inappropriately. And yet, at the end of the day, if what we are trying to prevent still goes ahead, personally, as a player, I do not feel robbed because the outcome was down to our actions. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that adds anything to the discussion, but it was just something that occurred to me while I was listening. Great episode, great discussion. And, um, yeah, thank you very much. Take care. And that's it. Big thank you to all the callers today, but especially Spencer for his comments about agency there, which I do feel adds to the conversation, mate. Thank you. But thanks also to Anthony, Evil Jeff and Jason for all the great comments. If you've got a question, call in via speakpipe.com slash roleplayrescue. Thanks to all the Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through patreon.com slash rpgrescue. Welcome to those who've joined us in the past couple of weeks. I think that would be Carl Rodriguez and John Mahoney. It's great to have you on board. Thank you to John from Tale of the Manticore for Roleplay Rescue's theme music. And thank you to you for showing up and listening. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. I'll see you again on the flip side. Game on. <laughs>